So the big question is this, how do investors like us get access to the ideas, information, and most importantly, the right people that give us the tools and information we need to make informed and educated decisions to have success? That is the question, and this podcast will give us the answers. This is Mark Moss, your host. Let's get this started. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptors Podcast. Today, I am joined by Philip Swift, and we are going to be talking about Bitcoin on-chain analytics, what they're looking like, how we can look at them, and what they tell us. Uh, Super, super interesting conversations that I've already had. I can't wait to jump in. So, Philip, welcome to the show. Hey, man. Uh, Thanks very much for having me on the show. It's great to be here. And uh, yeah, things are looking good in the market right now, and it's great to chat to you. Great, great. So, you know, I know we've had some conversations. I've been watching some of the work that you've been doing um, online and on your website. But for those that don't know, why don't you just kind of fill us in on, um, you know, who, how, what you've been doing, how you got here and, and what you're doing right now. Cool. Thank you. Um, so I am a full time Bitcoin trader and investor. I have been for about two and a half years now. I'm very passionate about Bitcoin for a number of reasons. So not only from an investment opportunity, but also I believe it's probably one of the most important tools for human rights in the world right now in the coming years, as we see governments have more and more issues with their monetary and fiscal policies. Um, So yeah, full-time trader investor, but in addition to that, I also build uh, valuation models for Bitcoin. So indicators and tools that help to identify when Bitcoin is under or overvalued. That's a pretty new and emerging space within Bitcoin. It's probably been in existence for a couple of years now because obviously Bitcoin itself is only 10 coming up to 11 years old. So uh, we haven't really had enough data until recently to be able to start to build valuation models for Bitcoin. And because it's a unique asset class, so it has characteristics that are quite different to traditional finance instruments, Um, You can't use uh, tools from the traditional finance world and just try and directly apply them to Bitcoin to try and value it. So so in traditional finance for stocks and shares, you have things like price to earnings ratios and discounted cash flows. You can't really apply those to Bitcoin. Um, But what we can do is try and come up with some new tools and metrics uh, to understand when Bitcoin is under or overvalued. And that's what I do. And uh, I launched, as you mentioned, a website last month called lookintobitcoin.com. And that has a whole bunch of these different valuation models and tools, all for free. Uh, Try to make them as user-friendly and nice to look at as possible and kind of live chart data form. And yeah, it's all free. Anyone can go and check them out. Yeah. Now, as you said, right, like typically when we're looking at uh, trying to value f- uh, financial stocks, uh, we look at fundamentals and the fundamentals are kind of like what you said, right, which are earnings ratios and, and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, and a lot of people have always criticized uh, cryptocurrencies because they don't have those fundamentals. You're talking about looking at different metrics that can give us the fundamentals um, because they're different, right? I get that. Exactly. but. Um, that's an interesting way to look at it. And I'm just curious, uh, I, I've kind of know, but why don't you fill us in a little bit on your background and how, mm-hmm. uh, maybe what shaped you? How did you get to the point to start looking at it like this? Uh, yeah, so my background is probably a little bit different to a lot of other traders and investors in the space. Um, so I studied economics at university. 
which was great in terms of giving me a good grounding in terms of how markets work, um, some macro principles uh, around economics and, and maths. Uh, but like I think many other people who studied economics, you kind of get to the end of it and think, man, this is so theoretical. You kind of want to throw all your textbooks out the window because uh, it's quite hard to apply a lot of it to the real world. So I kind of left uh, university feeling a little bit jaded, uh, but I was still very interested in the behavioral economics side of things. So understanding uh, what makes markets work. And so I then got a career actually working for major global drinks brands. Uh, so uh, companies that own brands like Jack Daniels, Grey Goose Vodka, Hendrix Gin, Stella Artois. So if, if you like a drink, you've probably heard of one of those brands. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually worked in a unit within these companies, uh, which was really a strategic marketing function of sorts. And unless you work for one of these big companies, you probably don't realize that these functions even exist. And it's called Consumer Insight Team. And the role of these guys is to understand the psychology of your potential consumers and your consumers, right? So you're, you're trying to segment them, understand their reasons for choosing your brand or for not choosing your brand. And that be, goes beyond just what they think about the sector. It's around their hopes and dreams and their fears and all that sort of stuff. So it, it, it goes quite deep in terms of market psychology. And uh, really, that's how these brands get so big is because they have a very sophisticated understanding of market psychology. Now, I'm and, curious if I can just jump in real, right there real quick. So um, you studied market psychology uh, working for the big brands. And mm -hmm. the economics was also um, trying to understand what markets are, market psychology, you said, mm -hmm. uh, what makes markets work, right? Yeah. I'm curious, um, you said that a lot of it's theoretical, which I think that theoretical part probably helps you today because trying to Absolutely. do ways to capture analytics, you have to be theoretical. Uh, I'm curious though, uh, you know, from everyone that I've talked to, I didn't major in economics, but I, I, I know a lot of people who did. And, uh, you know, they do not teach Austrian economics, which everybody basically ends up at after they've been studying Bitcoin, it seems like. Yeah. Um, and sometimes the university training you've had can, can keep you from really understanding Bitcoin because you've been trained maybe with blinders on, right? And you said, what makes markets work? And it seems like uh, what, whatever you want to call it, traditional or conventional economics versus like an Austrian is that uh, traditional economics thinks that the market is something to understand how it works and manage and, and, and manipulate versus Austrian economics understands that there is no such thing as a market. All we have is individuals wants needs and desires. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think about that? And, and how does that relate to studying a market, especially like for a brand? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's a, that's a fair summary. And I think a lot of frustrations come from, uh, the need. If you, if you are trying to focus in on a specific area, you have to make, compromises and sacrifices and often in economics the compromises and sacrifices around are around uh, recognizing that or, or therefore not recognizing that we are all uh, emotional beasts right we, we have emotions we're not rational players and uh, as soon as you start to assume that 
we're rational players, then then you start to lose understanding of how how the markets move and how the markets work. So uh, that's why I think behavioural economics is is so much more relevant, particularly to the world we're in today, and particularly to uh, assets like Bitcoin, which are very retail market driven. And so you have therefore, you know. To your point, you know, millions of individuals, all with their own emotions, and uh, when they are uh, trying to determine what they should do with their investments, they uh, are often or can be led by consensus. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of like, uh, it's like um, you, you say they're not rational, which I, I, I kind of agree. Uh, Mises from Austrian school, he says that um, it's always rational. So. I might look like I'm acting irrationally, but it's rational to me because I have my own set of circumstances. So yeah. uh, even though Bitcoin's going to go to a million dollars next year, I might sell it today for no yeah. reason that looks irrational, but maybe my kid got sick. I need the money, right? So there's, it's exactly. always rational to me, but you can't manage that because it's millions of inputs. Exactly. And, and that's really a point around context, right? Which, which going back to my previous employment, that, that's something we focused on a lot. You have to understand people's context to really understand if you want to fully understand their decision making process. But yeah, super interesting stuff. Yeah. Anyway, okay. So uh, you're understanding market psychology. I think like we said, like the, I, I think I could, un, I could imagine that the theory that you've learned in, in economic school probably helped you to start theorizing what kind of new metrics we could look at in Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And really it's the combination of the two, right? So you have economic theory plus market psychology. And for a market like Bitcoin, that that is very useful because uh, what we're seeing is Bitcoin is going through an adoption process. And on top of that adoption process, we have market cycles. And so combining those two fields has been very useful. Um, to me as a, as a trainer investor and to try and build some of these, these valuation tools as well over the past uh, couple of years now. <laughs> yeah, so then you started uh, trading Bitcoin on your own and then you started realizing that we don't really have any good metrics and so you've decided to dig in and, and start to try to see what was available and what else you could come up with? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I, I've been trading for probably a couple of years and that was all going well, but I, I found that I wasn't really that passionate about um, becoming a super techie, technical analysis geek. And I was more drawn to understanding the macro cycles of, of Bitcoin. And I started playing around with different types of data, one of which was some on-chain data. So I, I was on, you know, using sites like blockchain.info, which posts some pretty basic uh, on-chain data around probably late 2017, I think. And I started to notice that uh, on a macro level, there was a relationship between volume running through the blockchain on a daily basis and then also uh, Bitcoin price. So uh, when uh, volume through the blockchain was hitting sufficient levels, it was kind of a leading indicator to price moving up. And... Um, I, I posted a chart on it on Twitter, I think on Tone Bays' Twitter channel, and um, a guy called Willy Wu, who I imagine a lot of your viewers have probably heard of. Um, Willy Wu is like probably the godfather of on-chain analysis. Uh, he's, he's pretty amazing. And I've learned a huge ton of stuff from him over, over the years. 
And uh, he, he picked it up and he was like, hey, love this view. Hadn't seen it before. I'd like to put it on my site and you should write a paper about it. And so I did, I called it Bitcoin Network Momentum. And yeah, it kind of, so I had probably at the time like 30 followers on Twitter or something. And then within a week I had like 2000 followers. So I was like, okay, clearly there's some interest in this, you know, clearly people are interested in this sort of analysis. And then it really went from there, you know, because I then just started speaking to other people who were also looking at this sort of analysis and trying to build these types of indicators. And, um, and then, yeah, and the, the, that whole space now of valuing Bitcoin has really exploded. And now there's like, you know, crypto funds with teams of guys doing these types of analysis. So it's, it's just going to get bigger and bigger. I think. So let's, let's talk about that. So first of all, um, you talk about um, on-chain data uh, and indicators to help us understand Bitcoin and, and maybe identify where Bitcoin is going. So what are, what are the indicators? What, I mean, and not specifically, but what is generally, what is an indicator? What does that mean to the average person? Uh, so an indicator is really, so as an investor, in its most simple form, as an investor, a long-term investor, so we're not talking about trade, short-term trading here, I w want to know when is a good time for me to buy, when is a good time for me to sell. And these indicators show you uh, on a historical level, so looking back in Bitcoin's history, um, you know, when has Bitcoin been extremely over, oversold or, or overbought? And therefore, when is, when is a good time for me to, to buy or sell? Um, and that's pretty much it, you know. Uh, then, when you then, dig into the site, there's a bit more there. But in its essence, that's kind of it, really. So it's, uh, you're looking through data and basically it, give, it, it, it tells you something. That's the indicator. And it's indicating, hey, I should either buy or it's indicating I should maybe sell or I should watch it. And then you also talked about using on-chain data. So what does that mean? What, what, what is on-chain data? So on-chain data is uh, essentially uh, transactions that happen on the blockchain. So uh, if you send me some Bitcoin tomorrow, which you're more than welcome to do, um, it will- you know, Go ahead that and post will, your public address there. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, that will be uh, recorded on the blockchain. And that has happened ever since Bitcoin started. And so there is a, a huge amount of data available on the blockchain to look at in terms of size of transactions, the time that the transaction took place, the wallets that it moved from and to. And so you can uh, use that data at an aggregated level to um, look at trends over time, really. And those trends can give you clues, as we alluded to, as to when Bitcoin is oversold or overbought and therefore what as an, you should, action you could take as an investor. Yeah, I want to jump into some of the uh, indicators and tools. And so we'll, we'll talk specifically about some of the on-chain data because I know there's a ton of on-chain data. I'm just yeah. curious, though, um, you mentioned um, looking at macro cycles and, and, and having them be like leading indicators. And I know uh, one that has been used for, for many years was Google search data. And that's not on-chain data, I understand. Um, yeah. but, but people would look at like Google search and you could see how the the volume of Bitcoin being searched on Google correlated with the uh, price of Bitcoin. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people think that's a leading indicator. I've often thought it was a lagging indicator. So leading uh, means that um, it tells us before the move happens and lagging yeah. tells us it happens after. And it's kind of like a chicken or the egg argument where um, – because the Bitcoin price went from 7,000 to 20,000, everybody's searching it to figure out what the heck it is. 
Yeah. That's, that would be after, or are they searching it and then they buy, which then is a leading. What do you think? Uh, so I have some friends who've done a fair bit of analysis on that. And the conclusion is that it's a pretty lagging indicator actually. Okay. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't put too much weight on it. Um, but you know, as, as with any of these things, right, it's just one tool. And, and it's something I talk about a lot is how even all the charts I'm looking to Bitcoin, I mean, the purpose of the site is really to help regular people, not just large institutions, invest better in Bitcoin. And it does this by providing a range of tools because I believe that you shouldn't just try and hang your hat on one metric. You've got to use a range of tools, whether it's these sorts of indicators, whether it's technical analysis, Google search trends, to kind of join the dots and, and build up your thesis. So, Definitely. so yeah, I think it is a bit of a lagging indicator, but yeah, sure, all this stuff can be useful. But you think, uh, you think there's other on-chain data that is more of a leading indicator? So you think there is some good uh, stuff. Uh, without getting into the specifics of the actual specific indicators you have, I mean, is there a couple metrics that you think could be good as leading? Uh, yes, yeah, so I, I think you can uh, look at, um, well, well, we'll come on to talk about them, but yeah, so on-chain data specifically, like Bitcoin days destroyed, uh, uh, that, that is very useful in terms of looking at um, old guys who've held Bitcoin for a long amount of time, like are they, are they moving funds from their wallets that can give you clues. Uh, essentially, you're constantly looking for clues and hints as to what um, may be coming in the market. And so on-chain data can do that, but so can actually um, like price analysis. So, you know, half the charts on the site are looking at price data using moving averages to show you the broad trend of the market and whether we get to points where the market might be getting overheated or where everyone might actually be very fearful, you know, because a large part about understanding the Bitcoin market from an investment point of view is about understanding its market cycles. So it's about understanding when is the general consensus of market participants? When are they broadly over-optimistic? And that might be a good time to take some profit off the table. And when are they overly pessimistic? You know, when is everyone really fearful? I think, what is it, Warren Buffett, who said, you know, be greedy when everyone else is fearful, right? Sure. And if you fundamentally believe in the long-term prospects of Bitcoin, then being able to identify those periods can be very valuable to you as an investor in terms of knowing when to invest. Yeah. And so um, somehow the data can tell us when it's overpriced or when the market psychology, the market as a whole is greedy or mm -hmm. is, uh, is that. Now, uh, in investing, we've always said that uh, past performance is no guarantee of future. So I'm guessing you have to take that into account. Um, how do you look at that? I, I agree with that 100%, you know, and, and what I would say is that, you know, history doesn't always repeat, but it, it does influence the future. And we've got like 10, nearly 11 years worth of data now on Bitcoin. And so it does allow us to forecast what may play out in the coming months or, or, or years. But yeah, I mean, all of these tools, you know, they none of them may work going forwards, but... I think there's such an array of different types of tools that people are using now that, again, going back to my point before, if you, if you use a cross-section of them, all from different sources, and kind of join the dots, and they, they can help you forecast what may play out going forwards. 
yeah. um, you know, which, which a lot of funds are doing now, uh, as well as individuals with a with, you know, pretty high degree of success. So yeah. I, I think there's a lot in it. Um, but yeah, absolutely. You know, none of this is investment advice. Yeah. And also, you know, all of these tools are, are literally just educational tools to try and help you out. So let's talk about a couple of them. I know on your website, I think you have 10 or 12 different indicators. Mm -hmm. And um, again, I want to just impress on everybody that uh, one indicator by itself doesn't mean anything. Um, You want to look at all of them. Like like a good example in the traditional markets might be everyone thought, oh, when the yield curve inverts, uh, when the bond yield curve inverts, then the market's going to crash. Well, that's one indicator. All right. But when you look at all the other indicators of the market, to me, it was telling me that the market wasn't going to crash. And I've been pretty right. proud about that. Now we're starting to see it rally. Um, and so you can't just look at one indicator like that. Um, and so that's kind of what we're talking about. And, and there's 10 or 12 here, but there's other things, right, that you want to look at. I look at also like external things, not on-chain, like um, what are companies doing? Like uh, we've just seen in the last couple of weeks, uh, close to a billion dollars get raised for Bitcoin mining. That's a serious investment for long term. And that tells me something. We saw, you know, most of the, the big elite in Wall Street jump into Bitcoin just in the last month or two, um, you know, from Fidelity and, and back finally launched. And so that's fundamental. So I just want to impress on everybody. You want to look at all these things and what are they telling you? But um, if we can, let's talk about maybe just a couple of the indicators that you have that we can explain uh, without the need of, of charts and whatnot. And, and tell me what do you think are maybe like your most powerful or most easy to use ones? Yeah, sure. Let's start with, uh, well, like you say, given that uh, we're not in front of a, you know, the, the website itself right now, let's start with one of the simpler charts on the site. Uh, and in fact, I, I kind of designed it to be as simple as possible uh, because I wanted this site to be useful for anyone, whether they are, you know, a mega on-chain analytics geek. There's some stuff on there for like people like that, like charts like reserve risk. Uh, there's plan B stock to flow model, which I'm sure most people have probably heard of now. And then wind your right through to more simple stuff. So let's start with arguably one of the more simple ones. And it's just called the Bitcoin investor tool. And it uses a two-year moving average line of Bitcoin's price. So on the chart, you've got the price of Bitcoin. So you can see the price line. And then you also have a two-year moving average line of Bitcoin's price. So for anyone who doesn't know what a moving average line is, it's simply taking an average of the daily close prices over any given period of time. So you could have a 10-day moving average line, which shows average price of the past 10 days. You could have a 200-day moving average line, which shows average price over the past 200 days. But the result is a smooth line versus the more erratic daily price line um, because you're taking an average price over a number of days. And, and moving averages are useful in markets that tend to trend or have market cycles because the moving average can highlight when price is moving with or against the trend. Uh, so in a market like Bitcoin, it's actually super useful using moving averages. And here we use the two-year moving average because whenever price dips below that line, it has historically been an excellent time to buy Bitcoin. So in Bitcoin's now nearly 11-year history, price has only dipped below the two-year moving average line three times. And it does, when it does it, it does it for a few weeks or months. And if you bought 
during that period, you would have achieved outsized returns over the years because you would effectively be buying the bottom, right? If, when, when price dips below the two-year moving average, that is like the bottom of the bear market. Um, so it's a, as, a, as a, a, an investor who's able to remove their emotions a little bit, you can see when price goes below that two-year moving average line, it's an excellent time to buy. Did it recently, yeah. did it recently like in the last uh, six months, like maybe November, December, did it dip below that line? Exactly, exactly. So we saw it dip below the line um, in December, and obviously we bottomed out, what was it, $3,200? $3,400, yeah, around there. And, and then it came back up above the line in, I think, March time, April time. I should have the chart in front of me. Um, when we crossed about $5,000, it then, it then shot up above the two-year moving average line. And, and interestingly, we've actually just come back to retest it, which we've done in previous cycles as well. And that tends to indicate um, we're about to kick off now a, a new bull run. But I'm sure we can do when, when you When you exactly. test the line. Exactly, yeah, which we've just done literally a couple of weeks ago. So I'm um, curious, and, so what, uh, and I know you said you don't have the chart in front of you, uh, but maybe you can guess or approximate. Uh, if, if, if it said to buy right around there, when, when would it have told us to sell if you were to back up? Do you, you know? Yeah, yeah, well, exactly. So as an investor, you, like we talked about earlier on, you want to know when to buy and when to sell. And so the two-year moving average line can tell you when to buy because when price goes beneath it, that's when to buy. And what the other line on the chart does is it simply is uh, multiplying that two-year moving average by five. So the values of that two-year moving average multiplied by five. And what that does is it actually catches the tops of Bitcoin's price cycles. So, for example, uh, back in December 2017, when uh, we were... You know, at the top of the last cycle, and I think price went from like what was it, twelve thousand dollars to like nearly twenty thousand dollars in the space of like three weeks, wasn't it? Right. We saw using this indicator that price moved above that times five multiple uh, moving average line, and so that was indicating that actually that's a pretty good time to be taking some profit off off the table if you're a long term investor, uh, and it has done that uh, for each of Bitcoin's market cycles going back eight years now um, so it's a very simple very effective tool to indicate when is the market overly pessimistic and where is when is the market becoming overheated and overly so, optimistic so then as a long-term investor i mean it going back eight years it would have it's been effective so far we don't know the hit the future but it's been effective yep. and, and it would have told me to sell out at the top in december of 2017 or january 2018 and then buy back in at the bottom at December of 2019. Correct. I would have basically sat out of the market for a year, which. Correct. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you were only using that one tool, which obviously that, indicator. Now, that, that one is not using on-chain data, right? That one's using <clears throat> price action. Exactly. Exactly. And so. Now, what do you think about price action? Um, I know some of the best technical analysts in the market today, they, they really believe that technical analysis, even though it's math, um, meaning like Fibonacci lines, mathematical lines, it really works off market psychology. And so do you think somehow this moving average and the five times um, top line somehow works with market psychology, having been someone that's, that studied that? Yeah, I think it is. I think it is because all, all those moving averages are doing really is recognizing the Bitcoins on an adoption curve. So it's moving up. But on top of that adoption curve, you have, we are experiencing these very clear market cycles. 
right? And if you've been in Bitcoin for more than a couple of years, you, you, you kind of know what we're talking about. Um, we, there are times when the market is feeling pretty down about the prospects of Bitcoin, like arguably we were back in December. And then there's periods where everyone's super excited, piling in, you know, like it was back in December 2017. You know, you had all your friends coming up to you going, what's this Bitcoin thing? How can I get involved? And, and that is pure market psychology, right? That is, that is just people becoming either overly pessimistic or over optimistic. And, and all the moving average lines do in this instance is kind of cut through price as, it, as it's doing those huge swings. If you, if you really step back as like a long-term Bitcoin, you, you opened up with saying <laughs> that you really believe Bitcoin is this technology that can really free us from the banking system and really revolutionize everything. Um, as it gets bigger, the volatility should go down. And eventually, if it's Absolutely. trillion dollars, volatility. So do you think this model would be adjusted? So right now, it's at a five times off the 200, but maybe eventually goes to four times and three times and two times? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you're right. I think it will. And I think a lot of these valuation tools that um, all of us are, are working on at the moment will have to be adapted and some of them will just outright stop working. Right. And I, th I think a lot of these valuation models are effective whilst we're in this early adoption phase for Bitcoin. And there's very clear, aggressive growth. Uh, but I suspect in the next kind of couple of market cycles, will then move into a more mature market phase, as you mentioned, where the volatility will drop, die down. Um, the market cap will be, you know, over a couple of trillion dollars. And um, yeah, there will need to be new metrics. And who knows, those, those new metrics may be more in line with, you know, some of the stuff you see in traditional markets, because I suspect, and this is just a, a theory, that Bitcoin will, if, if it's still around, right, if it's still around in 10 years, I suspect it will start to be more in sync with, with global other global macro macro assets because by that time it will be pretty big yeah so that's the two-year moving average uh you call it the bitcoin investor tool and anyone can check that out at look into bitcoin.com uh, let's let's talk about another one maybe you have one that actually uses on-chain data uh yep so another one we could talk about that uses on-chain data would be mvrv z score sounds a bit of a funny name uh, but I love this chart. I didn't come up with the maths behind it. It's not my idea. Um, I just create the, the, the visual you can see on the site to try and make it easy for investors to use. Um, but I think the, the thinking behind it and the methodology is genius. MVRVZ score uses on-chain analysis. And uh, it was uh, the original idea behind it came from a couple of guys, uh, Murad Mamadov and David Kuehl came up for the idea is behind MVRV score, and then uh, Z score was added on top of it. Um, but it essentially is pretty straightforward. So it uses three metrics. So if you look at the chart, there's gonna be three lines on the chart. And the first is market cap. And market cap, just like you have in traditional markets for stocks and shares, where the, uh, the market cap is the share price multiplied by the number of shares, in the case of Bitcoin, market cap is the current price of Bitcoin multiplied by the number of coins in circulation. Right. So that gets you to market cap, right? And the market cap, when it's plotted on a chart, looks pretty similar to price because price is a full component of it. The second metric we use is slightly different, and this is where we use the on-chain data. So rather than taking the current price of Bitcoin, which market cap does, 
realized value takes the price of each Bitcoin when it was last moved, i.e. the last time it was sent from one wallet to another wallet. So it's like, yeah. a, co- it's like a cost basis. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can think it's about it. Trying like to, it's trying to guess like what that person acquired that Bitcoin for. So um, I, I last moved it at 5,000. Today it's at 10,000. So my cost basis or whatever, I'm, I'm, I only owe 5,000 on that coin. Exactly. So for calculating realized value, it would use the $5,000 value rather than today's price value. Got it. And in doing so, what that does is it strips out a lot of the short-term market sentiment that we have with the market cap metric. And so it can give, therefore give a, a more true long-term measure of Bitcoin's value. Why, um, why do you think it strips that out? Um, because if I'm in the money, if I'm in profit, I'm less likely to capitulate or less likely to sell out versus if I'm upside down and negative, I'm more likely to sell out? Well, the reason being is that all those considerations come into play in more short-term market, market thinking, right? And so realized value, it can be recording values from like last week or a year ago or five years ago. And so it just takes out a lot of the short-term market sentiment. So when we're seeing in the short-term, people might be overly pessimistic, like we said, or overly optimistic. Realized value doesn't really capture that. So if you look at the chart, it's a much smoother, uh, more steady line on the chart versus market cap, which because price is involved in it, is very volatile and goes to the extremes of over-pessimism and over-optimism. So that's that's what um, realized value is. And where we are interested in is looking at the divergence between the two. So when market cap is much, much higher or much, much lower, because that is when the short-term market is either overexcited or or over-pessimistic. And we can therefore use the the next metric, which is Z-score, which is simply a standard deviation test that pulls out the extremes in the data between market cap and realized value. And essentially what it does, uh, to cut to the chase, is that it's able to pick out the tops in Bitcoin cycles and also the lows. And it's actually so effective in doing it that it can pick out the market cycle tops to within two weeks. So back in December 2018, uh, one week before we peaked in price, uh, MVRVZ score indicated actually that the market was overheated and it was time to take profit. Um, So yeah, very valuable tool in terms of being able to determine when as an investor should I be taking money off the table or, or, or investing. Yeah. And does that line up with that other tool we just talked about, the Bitcoin investor tool? Did it both they both kind of line up in where they saw the market top? Yeah, they did. And you know that that's where, you know, it's it's uh useful to use a range of metrics, right? Like we were talking about, um, because they actually both pick the top in that instance and they also align with when uh the market bottomed earlier this year uh in yeah. last year. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so we're seeing some good, uh, good, uh, on-chain data with that. I mean, I would think that's, uh, somewhat complex and probably the average person would never be able to figure that out is trying to figure out of all the Bitcoins that are owned and held out there. What is the actual like realized value? What's, what was the cost basis of that? So that's, that's some good on-chain data. I like, I like the use of that. Good job on that. Um, do you have any other ones that might uh, use some good on-chain data we could talk about? One, maybe one more that, that would be easy for us to discuss? Uh, 
So the on-chain data stuff is probably the sort of stuff you want to sit down and uh, read about on the, on the site. So um, underneath each live data chart, there's a really short, uh, clear explanation as to how they work. Um, in the interests of us being on a podcast and uh, not having the charts in front of us, uh, probably one easy one to talk about and, and to visualize is one called the Pi Cycle Top Indicator. And uh, that uses price data and it uses two very specific moving averages. So a shorter time frame moving average, the 111 day moving average, and then a times two multiple of the 350 day moving average, which is pretty much a one year moving average. And the really interesting thing about this chart is that when the shorter time frame moving average crosses the other moving average, it actually captures the tops of Bitcoin's price cycles to within three days. So really, really effective tool in terms of identifying when is the market topping, and when is the market really overheated. And yeah, it's, um, I'm yet to find another tool that can pick those market tops as accurately. So, so that, that's, that's also price action. That's not really on chain. Exactly. exactly. I want to talk yeah. about just a couple other metrics that maybe you're digging off of on chain. One I know, and I, think, I think maybe we mentioned about is, uh, or maybe it was in one of our earlier conversations, but it's uh, like average days or days destroyed, right? So you can yeah. see like how long the Bitcoin's been sitting there. What, what's that one? Yeah, so that that is so. There's a chart on the site called Reserve Risk, which was developed by uh, the guys at Ikigai Fund, which is a uh, a crypto uh, fund based out in LA. Yeah, Travis Kling and his group. Yeah, 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 Travis uh, and those guys, and um, they did a lot of analysis around Bitcoin days destroyed, and the the, the concept around Bitcoin days destroyed is simply uh, as you alluded to. Um, if uh, looking at coins that haven't moved for a very long time, so let's say uh, a coin hasn't moved for five years and then I decide to send it to you today. When I send it to you, it would be destroying, in inverted commas, five years worth of days, if you like. And the reason why that is important when we do certain types of on-chain analysis is it's because it's kind of telling you that um, coins that haven't moved for a long time are now being moved. And that, that is quite important because what we tend to see is that participants who've been in the market for a long time, so like old guys, OGs, um, they tend to understand Bitcoin price movements very well, especially when you compare it to new entrants coming into the market. And so people like Travis Kling and, and other guys who do this sort of on-chain data, they give a lot of importance towards those guys. So when they're seeing lots of Bitcoin days destroyed, they're sitting up and paying attention. And actually, they've built tools that show you when there's a high level of Bitcoin days destroyed, and you want to be sitting up and paying attention in terms of whether people are buying and selling. So, um, yeah. Now, the on-chain days destroyed, I mean, it kind of shows the hodlers, right? That shows like who's holding and when that number goes down, it means those hodlers, those OGs um, are starting to sell. And then basically that would tell us like, oh, shoot, if these guys are starting to sell, then maybe the market's starting to soften. Is that kind of how that, how that works? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It can work in that way. Um, they actually then take it a couple of steps further to show you um, the sentiment, therefore, of those old guys, those hodlers, 
and where price is relatively at, at, at this moment in time. And so therefore, whether the market uh, is under or overvalued based on the sentiment of those old guys. So they get pretty sophisticated with it. Um, but yeah, really interesting stuff. So basically for everyone listening that's not really following along, it basically looks at how long the Bitcoin has been sitting still. So if I bought Bitcoin and threw it into a hardware wallet and it's been there for five years, it knows that, hey, he's been hanging onto this for a really long time. And he only has a small, small amount, but this guy has a lot of it and it's been sitting for a really long time. So it's kind of the days that it's been sitting still, right? And then it takes into some sort of a weighted score based off of how much I have or how much has been sitting in for how long. I'm curious, exactly. using that tool and looking backwards, um, back to uh, November of last year, um, you know, Everyone in the market kept saying, oh, we need capitulation. We need capitulation. The bottom won't be in until we have capitulation. And, and that means that uh, there's that final just sell-off where everyone just says, all right, enough. Screw it. I'm out of here, right? Um, and in November, after the market had seemingly found its bottom, um, in November, it dropped in half, 50%. I mean, it was a massive drop from 6,000 to 3,000 uh, approximately. What did the uh, what did what did that indicator show during that time? Do you know? Uh, so reserve risk, uh, you, you can check it out on the site. Uh, showed that actually, yeah, we we just had further down to go. So it was the the issue around that time was that it was price was kind of entering uh, over oversold levels, and that's why even a lot of the big funds were thinking, oh, maybe the bottom's in, maybe the bottom's in. And then the reality is we just crashed down even further. Um, so yeah, that metric, um, you know, we, we did go down further and it did actually highlight that, yeah, the bottom's in now. Um, I think tools that are even more sensitive than that are ones like MVRV Z-score. So that kind of, that played out perfectly. That, and that called it perfectly back in November, December. Arguably, that's a more sensitive tool for picking the market bottoms. Um, so yeah, going back to our point earlier, you always want to be using a range of these tools because Bitcoin Day is destroyed, but gave you some indication. But actually, it wouldn't it wouldn't have been able to to highlight uh, the absolute bottom in that instance. All right. So uh, interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. And um, I think uh, I, I, let's move on to something else that everybody is dying to know. So being someone who studied economics, studied market behavior, has been studying on-chain data, building models, building charts, and so forth, just tell us what it means. <laughs> where, 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 where do you think we are in the market cycle? Uh, you're, the, you're the expert here, right? Uh, I know we used to look at each one individually. What are you seeing in the market cycle today? Um, where do you think we are, I don't know, 12 months, 24 months, et cetera? Oh, uh, well, things are looking pretty good. Things are looking pretty good right now. I gotta say, you know, I mean, if if you've been in the market for a couple of years and you're still here, like, congrats, because I think I think we've got some good times coming up uh, in the next uh, year or two. Um, so yeah, I mean, one of the charts we talked about early on was the two-year moving average uh, multiplier, and and you know, as we said, we've seen price burst out of that uh, accumulation zone and retest it. And now we're in what I would call the first growth phase of uh, the coming bull market. And that is really where we have this slow, steady rise. It will feel like a bit of a choppy period when we're in it. 
but typically we're grinding up more than we are popping down. Uh, there'll be the odd little scare along the way, but then there's also going to be a couple of big jumps up. Um, and and that, that's going to last probably a few months, I would imagine, into the start of next year. And then stage two will probably be when we're a fair way into um, next year. And if you use one of the other tools on the website, actually, it's called Golden Ratio Multiplier. When price breaks above the red line on that chart, that's historically when we've seen Bitcoin enter its more aggressive second growth phase. And that's when things get really exciting and people start kind of, people from outside then start coming in saying, what the hell is all this about? Tell me about it, tell me how to buy this. That's when we will be into that phase. Um, but yeah, I mean, so yeah, I think I see those two phases coming up. We're just in the start of the first phase. I think it's going to last a few more months. I suspect, you know, the halving is going to have an impact. We are going to see price rise. And yeah, well, I think we'll be above the, the previous all-time high Q1, Q2 next year. And then, and then we're off to the races. And then, and then obviously, and, and, then, and then obviously, you know, we'll have hopefully some indication as to when the market starts to top out towards the end of that second growth phase, when we see, start to see a range of these metrics shown oversold, right? A combination of on-chain metrics, price analysis metrics, and, and you know, I'm sure there'll be various sentiment metrics as well when people are going crazy out there about Bitcoin to, to say, well, okay, now's maybe a good time to take some profit. Yeah. You know, the one thing that I always try to impress on people with uh, trying to do any kind of forecasts, I, I don't like to call them forecasts. I mean, they're guesses, right? <clears throat> I like to talk about them in probabilities. Um, so yeah. if this happens, then this happens kind of a thing. And so um, the one thing to keep in mind is kind of what you're saying. You're not trying to project when the next top is. Um, it's more like, hey, let's keep an eye on the indicators and it will tell us. So it's yeah. something that should be managed or, or, or monitored, right? And watched. And, and it's kind of like driving a car, right? You can't just close your eyes and open them when you get there. You need to be watching the signs along the way. Exactly. And you want to be managing your risk along the way as well, right? It's so important. Like, even if, if, if what I just described plays out, then like you say, it might do, it might not. Um, it, there's, there's a decent chance it won't, right? And so always be managing your risk, take some profit, live to fight another day, man. Because, you know, this, this, this market... Um, should be around for a while. So, um, so always take some profit, manage your risk and um, yeah, enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, switching gears just a minute. Um, now are, you're over in uh, England. Is that right? I am. Yeah. Yeah. You can probably tell from the accent. I'm not from your neck of the woods. I, I'm uh, based in London in the UK. What, what are you, what, what's your just, uh, what, what are you picking up as like market sentiment? Like uh, what are, what are people thinking? What are, what are people, are, are people actually buying it? Young people, old people, what are, um, you know, what are the stores thinking? What, are, what is the government thinking? Give us an analysis for England and maybe even what you're picking up in Europe. Sure. Um, Since you're into market psychology would, and all. I would say uh, it's, it's kind of, it's really sleepy, right? In terms of, if, I, if I'm trying to gauge general market sentiment, so I'm not talking about people who are in crypto right now, I'm talking about general market sentiment towards crypto. It's, it's super sleepy. I mean, to say we are price-wise where we are, you know, around $10,000, um, yeah, interest just isn't there. People are, people are far more interested in other things at the moment, right? Brexit is obviously a huge talking point here. Everything. Just got a general election coming up. That is what everyone is focused on, and, and you know, the issues behind that may, you know, 
drive the need for Bitcoin for the majority, like further down the line. But right now, everyone, everyone's focused on, on, on those issues. And I don't think people like kind of Joe public is really going to pay much attention towards Bitcoin until we are past the previous all time high. So I think once we're above 20K, 30K, I think that's when it's going to start turning heads again and when people will start to get interested. So that's, that's general public. I actually know, uh, I have some friends who work in uh, traditional finance and work for some pretty big funds, traditional hedge funds. And so I talk to them time to time, kind of say, how, you know, ask them how their stuff's going, ask me how my stuff's going. And it's, it's, you know, it's interesting to see their level of interest in Bitcoin. And I would, I would say it's still absolutely minimal. Absolutely minimal. It's, it's not like, you know, I, I think because we, we live and breathe this stuff every day, we think, oh, you know, everyone's going to be in like, you know, in the next few weeks, you know, um, when governments lower interest rates by a quarter percent, then, you know, the big institutions are going to come in. I still think most of the big institutions are a long way off. And the, re I mean, the reason why is a lot of it is not because they don't see the potential. Most of the reason is because it's so tiny that they can't pay attention to it. So absolutely. they're looking at stuff in the, you know, hundreds of billions or, or, or even trillions of dollars markets. And so something with a hundred billion dollar market cap is just too small for them. They can't, they can't, they can't move in enough or out. So I think there's a lot of it there. Um, I'm curious, though, because, uh, you know, understanding mar the macroeconomic, the, the market cycle is happening in a lot of countries is, is super important. So I study them a lot. And, and you said Brexit is at the top of, of everyone's conversation. Um, are people worried about the damage that Brexit's going to cause to, um, I mean, obviously, a lot of damage to trade and, and whatnot, but even just the currency, just your money? Uh, mm. switching from the euro back to the sterling and what's going to happen with the money. I mean, does anybody think about that or what are they, what are they worried about? Uh, I mean, I think again, going back to Joe public, they're, they're more concerned about, uh, what does it mean in terms of job prospects? And also what does it mean in terms of our relationships with other market with, with other countries, the trade, uh, right. In terms of trade, uh, and also in terms of, you know, I think people who, who want to remain in Europe, they're quite fearful around what, what does it mean socially in terms of how we interact with other, um, democratic markets and countries and cultures like, you know, those you have in Europe. So I think those are some of the concerns for most people. Um, but you're right. You're absolutely right. Whilst all this is going on, you know, the pound is, is being devalued and is likely to continue whilst there's all this uncertainty. And obviously people in traditional finance are much more concerned about that. Yeah, you know, um, it's unfortunate. I'm, I'm, I'm imagining all over the world, and, and probably the same in England as it is in, in the U.S., is they don't teach anybody about money. And I think almost purposely, right? They don't want you to know about money, banking, and, and whatnot. And actually, Henry Ford, the godfather of the you know, automobile assembly line, whatever, he was famously quoted back in the early 1900s saying that if the average person understood the banking system, there would be a revolution overnight. And that was back right. then. Imagine how much it's worse, how much worse it's gotten over a hundred years. Yeah. Uh, Ray Dalio, who's one of the you know, biggest fund managers in the world, Bridgewater Capital, billions of dollars. He's been pretty outspoken recently. And I just uh, retweeted one of, he, he put out a new paper yesterday and a uh, quote from Ray Dalio said, well, the, the name of the title is the world has gone mad and the system is broken. Um, and he says, 
quote, money is almost free for those who have money and creditworthiness. It is unavailable to those who don't have money and creditworthiness. This contributes to the rising wealth opportunity and political gaps. And so everyone's mad about the rich getting richer. And, and in the U.S., we have Bernie Sanders calling out to make billionaires being illegal. And, right. uh, and so everyone's kind of missing it that the banks are ruining the money. And that is what's causing your purchasing power to fall and whatnot. So that's why I was just curious. I mean, with Brexit happening, there's a real risk of what can happen with your money, both, both the sterling, if you go back to that, or the euro. Um, but probably, I guess, as you're saying, probably nobody knows that. Nobody's paying attention to that. Yeah, unfortunately not, right? Uh, and I, I, I think people won't really start thinking about it until they really, really, really have to, i.e. kind of when it's almost becoming too late. And, and, you know, you're, you're seeing that pop up around various countries around the world, right? All these issues like in Lebanon, Chile, Venezuela, Turkey, you know, the list is just getting longer and longer and longer. Um, all these issues in terms of government debt, um, managing, like I mentioned earlier, monetary fiscal policies, um, and, and yeah, just that wealth inequality gap is uh, really concerning in terms of the growth rate of a lot of that stuff. Cool. Well, we won't get too far into that. I just like to get a boots on the ground viewpoint, especially with someone with your background of market psychologies and, and whatnot. So I uh, appreciate you jumping into that, that end sure. of the pool with me just for a little bit, <laughs> but uh, all really, really good day, good information. I love these indicators. I love uh, having more tools at my disposal to put all this together. Um, where can people learn more about you and your work and follow you? Uh, well, uh, you can head to lookintobitcoin.com to check out all the live data charts. And there's a whole bunch of learning materials there as well um, if you're kind of new to that sort of stuff. And it's all totally free. Uh, go and check it out. And then if people want to follow me on Twitter, because I, I tweet out a lot of my sort of analysis on there, uh, you can search um, at Positive Crypto. Um, but my name is Philip Swift, so you can probably find me either way. Uh, I'm on there. Cool. Well, Philip, I appreciate you taking the time to talk today. It was, uh, it was awesome. Hopefully everybody enjoyed it. Brilliant. Thanks very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. Okay. See ya. Hey, if you like this episode of the Market Disruptors podcast, please help us take this to the top of the podcast charts. Just please do me a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. Taking 15 seconds to just leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us reach more people and disrupt more markets. I really appreciate you listening, and I'll see you next time on the Market Disruptors podcast.